0: Interval Drinks is recorded remotely.
1: Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin
0: Escapes. Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is Interval Drinks, a podcast in which Royal Shakespeare Company resident artists talk to people who have inspired them over drinks.
2: I really recommend working at the RSE during a pandemic. <laughs> There's no audience that matches an audience of young people. I mean, I literally left drama school thinking, this will never work out.
1: I'm trying to flatter you, but I'm probably insulting you at the same time. I
2: don't want to be less soft. I, I want to be vulnerable.
1: I want to wander around with all my emotions terrifyingly close to the surface and, and then monetize that.
2: This is why I'm doing this. This is what I was born to do. And this is why I was born to do it.
0: Catching up in the interval this week... It's Miles Jupp and Tim Minchin. Hello and welcome to Interval Drinks, the RSC podcast where we talk to artists who inspire us. My name is Miles Jupp, I'm an actor and writer, and my guest today is Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin is many things. He's a composer, a lyricist, a musician, a comedian, an actor, a writer, a producer, an Australian and a director. He has toured and performed solo throughout the known world. Uh, He's an associate artist of the RSC and in 2009 was commissioned by them to write the music and lyrics for a stage adaptation of Roald Dahl's Matilda. Directed by Matthew Walker, and with a book by Dennis Kelly, Matilda the musical went on to become one of the most critically and popularly successful musicals of the last 20 years. In 2021, it celebrates its 10th anniversary in the West End. Tim also wrote the music and lyrics for Groundhog Day and played Judas Iscariot in the arena production of Jesus Christ Superstar. His debut album, Apart Together, was released in November 2020 to inevitable critical acclaim.
1: So, Tim, uh, welcome. First of all, thanks for being here. It's
2: a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think when we first met. I've got a very clear recollection of seeing you win the Perrier Newcomer Award. Uh, yeah so that what, was
2: the year we met and sort of then I think we met the following year and you know not much since then
1: latitude not I remember enough talking to you backstage. yes latitude and you because like me you were you were at a sort of gilded balloon act I was at the stand the rest of the year but in August I was always at the gilded oh, balloon lovely. and you sort of appeared you lived fully up formed. There at,
2: y- yes well I was yeah well that was the trick in hindsight I didn't know much about it but Definitely, if I try and explain the journey, in hindsight, it's it's that, you know, growing up in Perth and just sort of being ignored for a long time meant that by the time people took notice of me, I had, um, had a sort of vibe.
1: That thing also being ready and sort of knowing, because you had a look as well. You had that sort of strong, you know, yeah. people, people like me, I guess, would uh, see what was in the wardrobe and choose the thing that needed least ironing whereas you had yeah. kind of visuals you were barefoot yeah so you had a kind of what a karmic sort of quality
2: to you i suppose yeah totally like a a buddha or some description i i um i mean that that's a, um by virtue of the fact that i I'm a theater cabaret kind of guy you know and i just didn't know that i was walking into a British comedy scene that had been kind of shuffling guys in T-shirts for the last 13 years, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and that doing, you know, having a show that has 57 lighting cues wasn't a normal way to turn up to your first Edinburgh. Um, fringe. When you've got a sort of
1: 15-minute get-in time.
2: Mm, that's right. But, you know, Karen, Karen did, did, me, did me proud and just threw everything at it in the end. So what?
1: Um, let's start then in, in terms of how you've got to where you are now. Let's let's start at, at the beginning then. You say, I mean, are you from a cabaret background? Are you are you being quite honest there?
2: I thought no, of yours more uh, burlesque. Yeah, thanks. It's my nipple tassels. They throw people off. <laughs> I, I, I mean, from very early on, from as soon as I left school, in you know, a very unsuccessful or at least low-key youth theatre, amateur theatre children's theatre kind of way. I was writing music for stage and performing in bands and trying to get acting gigs, you know, a bit of Shakespeare in the park and stuff. So everything I do now I was doing in Perth in 1998. I just um, wasn't getting paid, you know, and I wasn't very good. But also sometimes it's that thing, isn't it?
1: You know, you start out doing lots of different things and you just think when you're sort of young and energetic, it's wise, isn't it, just to throw as many balls in the air as you can. And then down the line, they will land in the right place, or some of them will. You know, you've got these, well, three or four strings to the bow now, I suppose. But if you started, you know, if you arrived in Britain, for instance, as this troubadour, uh, and then you've got the writing for the stage thing. In terms of like the comic aspect to it, were you, when you first started writing, say, for the stage, uh, was it was it comic stuff or were you a sort of serious boy playing um, Nirvana songs at open mic nights?
2: Uh, somewhere in between there. I mean, my... Uh, my problem, I guess, with trying to be a musician was that I was always uh, whimsical or quirky or, yeah, so from very early on, from 12 or 13 when I first started writing songs, some for some reason at about 15 I wrote, or 14 I wrote a song called Hitler Had a Poodle Too <laughs> and it was the weirdest song, I still don't know. Where that came from, Hitler, Hitler had a poodle who, Hitler had a poodle too, yes, he was just like me and knew he needed someone till the end and the poodle was his only real friend. It was just this weird, it wasn't really, well, yeah, it was humanising him, I suppose. It was, um, it was just absolute chaos um, <laughs> and, and something about he threw a ball and he blew up or something. I mean, it's just so strange. Did you perform that publicly? No, absolutely not. What would have been the response? Do you do
1: you feel um, I have if you'd sort of it, got up it, as a fifteen-year-old and sung a song about yeah. "Hey, let's remember that there there was another side to the guy"?
2: There's another side. Well, I don't think he. I don't think it painted him a very nice light. Um, uh, although um, being empathic towards psychopaths is something very interested in, so that hasn't changed. Um, it's a huge challenge to be empathic towards evil people, but it's still all our moral uh, duty to try and do so.
1: I mean, this is us talking about it in a sort of jokey way, but your there is a sort of reach to your songs. For instance, it's not you know it's it's not sort of quirky songs about what you've got in your fridge. There's a kind of bigger picture there. It seems to me that you're, you're ambitious, but your ambitions it turns to the scope of what you do. They're not little things that you're trying
2: to do. No, it's sex, death, and sex, death, and God. And actually, I mean, I, I understand you said that has reach and scope were the words, and you could say audacity and ostentation. Um, or pretentiousness, and I really appreciate reach, reach and scope. But it's not, it, there's no intent. I mean, my career, is a huge amount of intent in in what I do, as in I pursue a good version of what I'm trying to express within my skill set. But there's no, I didn't become a comedian in order to have a platform from which to spout my ideas because I'm trying to change the world. I became a comedian because... When I did the funnier songs, people came and I needed to pay my rent. And And when they started coming, they really liked the gaudy stuff and at that time I was reading a lot about belief systems and neuropsychology and stuff and so that is what I ended up talking about. Only, by the way, for five or the five or six years that I was a comedian. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm really interested in the big questions and now i've taken all those that interest and i and it's sitting as subtext in everything in everything i do such a fine line
1: to tread isn't it and i think that's you know sort of a measure of your your skill i suppose that you can throw up above the audience a sort of a floaty cloud this this idea but then also you're then going to sit down at the piano and you're going to bang out tunes about it that are funny
2: well it depends on no ah uh, oh god god forbid it does depend on what you think your job is and what tradition you think you're coming from and i i i always had have had and still have a profound sense of disconnection from i mean i'm i'm a, a sporty guy from perth who really loved playing piano and loves playing with words um but i also found that expressing uh, you know being polemical made people laugh and feel heard or gave them an outlet for their anger or or, or whatever so I wasn't going what, what, what is my job as a comedian I've never identified as a comedian I just don't see myself my shows uh, I, I still think are more cabaret shows than stand-up shows because even right back at the beginning I was playing Not Perfect and White Wine in the Sun and you know ballads that were meant to make you cry and you know it's why the the happily the minority who didn't like my stuff found it hard. Is because it sort of didn't adhere. It just said, "Well, now I'm going to talk about this, and I don't want you to laugh for this two or three minutes. I want, I want to just have a bit of a rant." That's kind of the key, isn't
1: it? As well, that thing of thing. What I'm going to do is the thing that yeah. I want to do. That that's what yeah. you're watching me. I haven't thought right. What? Who are the 1,500 people buying a ticket? What sort of thing do they need? Because that's kind of sort of. Um, question time style just sort of parading isn't it going oh, what would make this audience clap and I think the thing is if you follow that route I mean the idea that you're you know you you start out where you start out and then and then just for it to land big in so many different mm. places I remember going and doing the New Zealand Comedy Festival in 2010 I think it was and obviously you know you're sitting on a plane and you think am I going to be funny <laughs> this far away from home I have no I mean, I remember once when I lived in Edinburgh, going down to do a gig in Leicester, thinking, "I wonder if this is funny in England?" Yeah. You know, because I'd only
0: yeah.
1: gigged in sort of Edinburgh and Glasgow and Aberdeen places. But that, you know, that sense of going there and like people laughing in um, Auckland or Wellington, finding that actually mm. sort of overwhelming, and this sense of relief—it's it, it's a really magical thing. The
2: idea, all oh, this is—it's beautiful. Translates. Really. I mean, if if you're if you're gonna if we're going to have a conversation about whether your art means anything, whether comedy means anything or whether doing what you do means anything, surely that, the fact that it, that people in New Zealand and people in Edinburgh laugh at the same things is profound in some way. I mean, as I've said, I mean, journalists has asked me this all the time because I'm an Aussie who has performed in mostly the UK and the States, but, um, you know, you know, what's the difference in the sense of humour? And I'm like, well, if you're talking about sex, death and God, there, there isn't one really. The difference in the sense of humour is um, education-based, socioeconomic, I guess, which is correlated to the former, and um, geographical, which is correlated to both. So if you, you're much more likely to have the same problems with your material when you leave Sydney and go bush as you're going to have when you leave yeah. London and go, you know, to East Anglia or whatever, you know.
1: I did a gig in a Broken Hill once. Oh,
2: nice. Good gig.
1: And uh, they kept shuffling the bill around and I was going on last and I do remember sitting in the wings thinking, is this, is this going to work? This seems such a long way from where, yeah. you know, this is not the uh, – the studio room at Cheltenham Town Hall, whatever it might yeah. be. But
2: it, and, just, but it is, and then the relief it, as well. It is the the studio room at Cheltenham Town Hall. And, and what comics do that, I, and I know I'm coming from a position of privilege because my I jumped the club stage. I just went from not having anything to touring my own shows. So I got to do, I never yeah. did less than an hour e- ever really, except when I was doing charity stuff. And that's that's because it was a theatre show and it came formed and there's you know, that's luck, but but what what I never got the the that pressure that stand ups get, which is you suddenly are doing jonglers and you wanna be a comic, but you need a good fifteen minutes that's gonna work at jonglers, and you get this Darwinian natural selection and your material starts becoming uh, something and you go okay, and I'm going to do junglers in Glasgow and whatever in in Camden, and you start thinking, well, what will they like? And you've got to think that because you've got to pay your bills, and they're the gigs, right? But it it can be really dangerous because you start second guessing, and actually, what you're doing is being condescending. Now, I, I would always die at junglers, so so there's sense in it. But but if you go to Broken Hill and go, oh, these Aussies from the boondocks aren't going to get my, my quirky British whimsy, then what you're doing is actually looking down on them. I think you've got to be very careful about second-guessing an audience because actually if you're doing the sort of stuff I'm doing, sex, death and God and clever words and stuff, you might lose 80% of them but the 20% of people in Broken Hill who love it won't have ever got that, especially not in Broken Hill. So it's super special and it's, you have to ride the fact that Eighty percent of them aren't la- laughing. That's just your ego. But the twenty yeah. percent who walk out going, "That's the coolest thing I've ever seen." That's that's why you owe them you, not not a broken, hillified version of you.
1: So something like Ma- Matilda. Then let's let's talk about that. How, when did that process begin? Well, what age did you actually start thinking about writing about that, and how eventually did you get to the point where the RSC were involved?
2: Well, I mean. It, this is a story of coincidence or fate, depending on how you interpret the chaos of the universe, but I actually wrote to the Dahl estate in, at the turn of the century at some point because I was writing music for a theatre company in Perth called Barking Gecko and had just done a, a musical version of A Thousand one and One Nights and written all this sort of music that would probably be appropriation now. And um, I... I was just trying to think of other ideas for children's theatre and and when I say I wanted to write Matilda, I was thinking I would write a bunch of songs for a little version of Matilda and it would go on for two weeks and then it would never be heard of again because that's what I was doing at the time. So I wrote to the Dial estate and said, how do, you know, how do I go about getting the rights to do that? And they sort of thought I meant I want to write the definitive version of Matilda the Musical. And said, well, we're, we're very interested in, you know, theatrical adaptations of Roll's work. Um, you know, send a score and we'll consider it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I don't write scores. I, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I just mean like I'll write some songs and teach them for the kids and then I'll get paid 500 bucks and I'll go and do the next thing, right? So I just gave up on that. And what's amazing is that, of course, the way time works, I, in 2000 I was 25 and I got to Edinburgh when I was in the year I turned thirty, and the RSC approached me in the year I turned thirty-three. So this is tiny amounts of time, but of course at the mm. time it felt like a lifetime, and the distance between me arriving well, it's a third of yeah, yeah that's, that's right, that's right, life, and, yes. and the, I got to Edinburgh in twenty oh five, and 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 the RSC approached me in twenty oh eight. So I think of my uh, letter to the Dalai State in two thousand as like a message in a bottle I put out into the ocean that floated around and sort of washed up on the shore of the RSC but completely without any relation to that uh letter uh I got my agent Chiggy who you know of course um uh said to me the RSC want to have a meeting with you and I thought well Maybe someone's told them I used to play, you know, Fabian in Shakespeare in the Park and can do tin whistles as well as iambic pentameter. <laughs> and uh, so I thought I was, they were, you know, very flattered. I thought they were going to go say, do you want to come and do a play? Um, this was before anyone else had um, identified my predilection for acting. But um Matthew Warchus was in the room, and I knew I was meeting a guy called Matthew Warchus, but because I was just wrapped up in my life, I hadn't Googled him or anything, so I didn't quite realise he sort of came dripping in Tonys and a reputation for being uh, taciturn or uh, hard to read. Right. Um, so I just walked into this room, and this incredibly sort of lovely, quiet man said, um, have you ever, you know, are you a fan of Roald Dahl? And I went, well, yeah, it's like my entire childhood was defined by it. And he went. Do you know the story Matilda? And I went, y- yeah. And he said, we, we have the rights to turn it into a musical. And the RSC was wondering if you've ever considered writing for musicals. And I went, well, I've, I've written like ten, but <laughs> they're all in the bin. <laughs> but here's some demos, you know. And uh, actually, I had, I had been writing songs for theatre right up. My last one was in 2006, only two years before, and actually the opening number of that musical, which was written on commission for a, a regional theatre in, here in New South Wales, um, I took the opening number and just stole it and it's now the number miracle from the opening of Matilda. That's,
1: that seems to be, a, I don't know if you'd call that, what a sort of um, astral or karmic synchronicity yeah. about it. I mean, did you say... Did you say to them, "I've already written it," or did did they think that you just turned? God, that guy turned stuff around quickly. No, like I hadn't. Awful.
2: I hadn't written anything for it. I mean, I hadn't. Matilda, as a musical, was just an idea I wrote to the Dallas State. I didn't do anything. I didn't think about it. And Matthew, for years, went, "You had already written some stuff, hadn't you?" And I'm like, "No, I, I absolutely hadn't. I'm not an idiot. I would I didn't spend time writing it without the rights. I, I hadn't even maybe such was the boldness of your approach to the Dallas
1: State." That when the RSC got in touch and said we'd like to get the rights, they said, "Ah, well, well this is guy. you're going to have to you're going to have to fight with Tim Inchin <laughs> for that because um, he's very keen. He sent us a letter
2: and he's writing. He's taken several years writing a score. I don't think they even believe the story. No one can, can find evidence of the email, but um." I sometimes think I made it up, but I don't. I didn't. Uh, but <laughs> and that would be uh, so
1: impressively cynical. Yeah, totally. I do need an interesting backstory yeah. there. It can't just be a sort of commercial oh, that transaction. Would be good publicity. I went out once and
2: got drunk. I woke up. I had a Matilda tattoo yeah. the next day. I got an email from Matthew War. Um, but yeah, I I didn't. I hadn't written anything, but I did steal some music from a previous musical I'd written. But um, but I actually wrote the first draft of Matilda in a single six week period. Because my son was due and I was busy, so I I needed to get it done. I mean, that sounds extraordinary.
1: It's just a, it's quite a sort of magical way of something happening. But then I yeah. suppose lots of things have happened that straightforwardly, of course, that haven't gone on to have that enormous kind of that sort of reach. And when something there's a kind of alchemy to it, isn't there? You mm-hmm. know, there's lots of things with good directors, with good writers, yeah. with well cast all the technical stuff but for whatever reason it just just doesn't happen and when it does when something
2: like that catches fire i talk about in those terms all the time i talk about it as lightning in a bottle not just that i had been interested in the project before and it came back in a cosmic way but just everything has to go right doesn't it
1: but then when it does the fact that it has done you know there's some people i suppose what motivates them if they you know, they think, I've got a hit in me. I know I've got a hit in me. And that's the thing that keeps, you know, getting them going. I, I was at a dinner once at a, at a book launch and it was a very nice man, Felix Francis, was introducing everyone around the table. And there was one man, he pointed to, he said, this man has written a hundred books. And everyone at the table went, wow. But the man who'd written a hundred books, he said, yeah, but if the first one had sold and you thought, yeah, that's the thing that kind of drives it. people on, mm-hmm. right? But whereas, the, whereas, in your position, I mean, is it not quite in the thought of then you've done something and it works? The thought of then saying right well now do another one that becomes suddenly terrifying.
2: Oh, it, it depends.
1: I mean, in terms of the lightning, how how many how often does lightning strike? You can have an amazing success like that, but then it's it's a sort of rod for your own back,
2: isn't it? You think lightning oh, that's rod? The, that's where I've set the bar. Yeah. Well, except I don't care. Um, <laughs> and the reasons I don't, <laughs> the reasons I don't care. Look, I've got. I mean I've got plenty of demons and things that worry me and I'm you know I'm anxious about my work and I you know hate my own stuff and I you know I've got lots of stupid insecurities and I don't always find everything easy and I'm not always you know comfortable psychically but I don't care about that stuff and I, and I don't know whether that's I don't know whether I always would have been pretty sanguine. I suspect not. I think my not caring is because things have gone well. So I think... But then also I suppose you can look at success in terms of statistics, you know,
1: couldn't you? Or just in terms of personal response that you must get to Matilda. So for instance, COVID, my elder son's uh, primary school, you know, they just didn't really finish school. Mm -hmm. You know, they all left school four months early, suddenly stopped, you know. And they, they made an online levers assembly. And they all, they all sang, When I Grow Up, you know. And that's, that's the thing that all around here, there's, I know lots of parents just crying into their laptops. Yeah. Uh, that kind of connection, that, I mean, that's got to be worth much more than yet another residuals change. Yeah,
2: without a doubt. Matilda, I think one of the great strokes of li- luck in my lucky life is that the thing that really hit is a thing that just does good you know in this world that I I think some of my work has done good um, but uh, some of it especially some of the political stuff I've done here in Australia has really really done huge amount of good for uh, vulnerable people and uh, and for getting the word out and but it's polemic and, and and the and the other side is that a whole lot of Australians hate me, hate me like in a way that I would like to be able to laugh at, but it's awful, awful, and I'm talking yeah. about journals who write columns about me and call me bigot and say i'm ugly and like like hate me and and i'm not i'm I find that really hard i'm not I'm not cool with that you know I'd like to get better at that, and I'm getting better at it, but it's awful it's as awful as it is for anyone you know. But Matilda just does good, you know, and it, and I get letters from, you know, parents of uh, non-communicating autistic kids telling me about how their kid listens to quiet over and over again and how they, they were able to say to their parents, this is how I feel, you know. And, I mean, that's just an example of one of the things that makes me cry as well as the fact that I know kids all over England are singing when I grow up and and that that the RSC uses some of the money and and their power and reach to uh, create education programs based on Matilda where kids write their own songs in those characters' voices. I mean, these things are worth their weight in gold. And then there's the gold.
1: So I've started working for the R- RSC this year. And for me, and I've been doing, I don't know, I've done, yeah, I've done all the, the comedy stuff and panel shows, but also, you know, been of stuff at the National and in the West End and stuff like that. And yeah, even to me, it's still an element of a shock to the system, this kind of suddenly being part of this, um, this kind of institution. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's pictures, you know, black and white photos on the wall of other people that have done what you're doing now. And to be honest, they're intimidating. I suppose it's meant to help you sort of admire the sense of history. We think... Oh well, if he played this part, what am I doing here? Is kind of how you feel about it mentally. But what, how was it for you? How much of a culture shock was it for you? Suddenly, you've had this stroke of luck, or or whatever you want to call it. That's got this got you in the room suddenly.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, this taciturn man has given you the gig. Mm. What were the big shocks to you when you got there?
2: Um, I feel like I, I feel like growing up in Perth requires too much explanation. It's i can't describe to you how far from my expectations for myself my career is i mean and just the way i was brought up and being living in the most isolated city in the world and not really you know having a model you know my family were gorgeous but the, i didn't there was i wasn't modeling myself on anything I, there were no ladders in my periphery, i I want to climb that one or that one. I was. I was just. I just thought I could maybe play in a piano bar. Imagine that. Because I'm self-taught as well. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I, I also wasn't. You know. I mean, I had some lessons, but I. No one taught me to compose or write lyrics, and I can't read music. And no one really. You know, not many. I've only had a few piano lessons, and I. I just and all my friends went off to acting school, and I went. Oh no, that's for special people. You know, that's my headspace. But but that doesn't correlate with a. Uh, with a terrible, terrible, um, uh, wh- wh- what's that thing everyone talks about? Um, imposter syndrome. I, I, yeah, It's actually weirdly inoculated me against imposter syndrome because it's so, it's also absurd that I almost don't feel like it's absurd. I just sort of, I just kept. Things kept going well, and that was great. But I take my work very, very seriously, and I have this sort of work ethic that came from my, you know, surgeon father and my, you know, quite sort of strong mum or whatever. And I just, I just, I feel the responsibility hugely. Like, I've got to. Do a really good job here because these guys are great. Dennis Kelly's amazing. Look at this script. Matthew Watchers, he's he's so smart. And they, and apart from anything else, they just th- those guys and, and Chris Nightingale, the and 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 I mean every I they just made me laugh and I just loved I loved the journey of um um you know, the creative journey. But I don't know whether I ever gave a hoot about whether Lawrence Olivier was on the wall. I just sort of thought, oh. I wonder what he thought when he got this gig. You know, I didn't. I don't feel the weight of that stuff, maybe because I come from so far away.
1: I think that's a thing whereby, you know, what you are now, from, from where, where you're from, you are now the person that some people can point at and say, I want to be like that guy.
2: Yeah, but um, I wouldn't have looked at me and gone, I want to be like that guy. I just would have thought that's out of reach. I don't know why, it's weird because I think uh, it sounds like I'm pitching myself as like a super, super humble guy, but I'm just, um, you know uh, a few years ago, Shakespeare's death turned 400 um, in 2016. I got to come and uh, (laughs) I got to do this sketch uh, that the artistic director had written and I worked with him on it and in that sketch was you know, Dame Harriet Walder and Dame Judy Dench and Surian McKellen and Prince Charles and Benedict Cumberbatch and David Tennant and, you know, um, Papa Esiedu and, you know. I'm not being cynical, but those to me all sound like straight offers. No, it's not the most open audition <laughs> process. No, I don't think People anyone... People talk about
1: access, don't they? Look at that. Disgusting. Right.
2: There's very little diversity in that cast in that they're all really, really famous. There's no fame diversity. Um, But it sort of didn't bother me, you know. It it just didn't, I don't know, does that, would it, when you were, would it, does it bother you? I don't, I was happy to meet Charlie and, you know, I'd I'd sort of met met Cumberbatch before and I knew David a bit but but it just doesn't, it, it excites me but it doesn't, I don't feel cowed by it and I think it's because when you come from where I have come from both geographically and in all other senses, it's... You know, you just sort of think, well, I wonder what I'm going to talk to these guys about. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: also because you think, you know, just empirically verifiably, you're meant to be there. I'm okay
2: at my job. They've asked, they've asked me to be here. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I yeah. should be, I suppose. I guess I don't second guess myself too much. And the other thing is philosophically, I, I, um, you know, I don't believe there's such thing as free will. You know, I, particularly, I, I understand that um, we live in a deterministic universe and. I am lucky, I'm not wicked, I'm lucky. And even the fact that I can work hard is lucky and even the the fact that these are my interests are lucky, you know. And, and because of that, I'm sort of, I don't know, I just take it as, a, I, don't, I don't think about I take it as it comes. About. But I
1: think also that it's, I mean, the thing about imposter syndrome is it stops people enjoying something that just is enjoyable and that's the reason people want to do it. So to get yeah. to that position and then not enjoying it. Yeah. Not enjoy it, it's madness yeah. and it's sort of self, you're like, well, it should have gone to someone and else. And
2: there's a lot I don't enjoy about it, but but I love being there. I love the work. I love being on stage. I love that I got to do Jesus Christ Superstar with Sporty Spice and I get to do a sketch <laughs> with Prince Charles and I get to talk to you and I get to, you know have my name up on the wall of the RS. I don't want to
1: like say I'm an example of imposter syndrome, but I'm not sure I deserve to be on that list. Oh, there was the time I did a sketch of Prince Charles of the Royal Shakespeare
2: Theatre. I I had a Zoom call with Miles. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know. It's all amazing. And and me coming to England was like, I just love all of you guys. There's some mean ones as well and some, you know, especially in the comedy world, a bit of, you know, (laughs) bitter bullying went on when I was there. Um, because i was an outsider and sort of waltzing in and they all yeah, they all thought i must
1: there were some lineups you know. i used to look at and i think i'm i'm gonna bring a book yeah
2: totally
1: <laughs> <laughs> if there's an early show in a late yeah. show i'm definitely yeah. bringing a book but, uh, um can we talk about the sort of nitty-gritty of, of matilda if you don't mind yeah
0: because
1: it's a big beast right this thing you're getting into it's not like someone saying could you write five minutes of stuff or can you write a lecture or yeah something um you know, there's so much obviously that can go right, and then so much that can go wrong. And I kind of want to know about the, like, what the gambles were in the show. Um, you know, what were the big choices that had to be made? Well, you know what, and what got lost along the way?
2: Hmm. I, I don't. Or,
1: or is it the first draft as presented? Yeah. Is that what just gone It's straight? not far off. It's very simple. There's words, there's songs. Just everyone's spread out yeah. a bit. We all know <laughs> where the audience
2: right. is. Face forward. I mean, it's a question for Matthew. He's the genius. You know, he he. Well, Dennis is genius too, but Matthew's the architect of the show, and it's just fastidious. Um, it's microscopic. His uh, puppetry, you know, um, and and I mean, were you made to
1: work really hard? No, no. Although the lightning struck, did it? I mean, was it hard work, or did it did it just happen?
2: Well, I remember quite clearly, almost literally, looking at myself in a mirror and going don't screw this up, Inchin. This is, I, after I'd read the script and after that offered me the job and after I'd accepted it and I'd kind of got my head around who Chris was and who Matthew was and what they had done, their pedigree, I just went, don't, if, if this doesn't go well, it's your fault. I, I, I literally said that to myself and that, that says something about my personality as well. But also was it a, was it a helpful pressure? Yeah, yeah, I, and I do that to myself a lot. It's it, it's absolutely my sort of way of being. As I go, I, I I I say I I know you think I'm joking, but I'm a sporter, right? And so I I remember my dad going. It's when when you know because I used to do some distance running. I still I still run a lot, and it's I, I'll never forget. And it sounds so trite because my dad gave me no advice, and he was almost being ironic when he gave me this advice because he knew it was so sort of tropey. But he said you know, uphills when it's basically the going gets tough, tough get going. Uphill is when you overtake people. And and I have that attitude and I still use running as a way of saying to yourself, you know, come on, don't, don't let the hard stuff stop you. I use it as a sort of working metaphor still. But I also believed I was uh, equipped um, even though I had a lot of like Literally, I, my wife hates me telling this story because she doesn't like becoming the sort of this in my stories. But I, I came home and I said they want me to write a score for Matilda and Sarah said, why don't they get someone proper to do it? And, and the reason Sarah said that is because she's just <laughs> voicing what we both thought, which is there must be people trained at the Royal College who write dots and, you know, why, why yeah. are they asking a, a guy who plays chords, you know? And so I came to it with that that level of imposter syndrome, but an absolute other belief that I had read a lot of Dahl, and I got the dark light, and that's to answer your question, your initial question in the shortest possible way it's the dark light tightrope that Matilda's greatest challenge was because you're trying to write a family musical and you're trying to musicalize, but Dahl is all about the dark and light and i said to matthew in that first meeting i don't i said i don't know if you're gonna choose me to do this but please don't let whoever writes these songs turn it into a disney thing you'll kill it like i was literally lecturing matthew in that first meeting like he'll tell you (laughs) this um i was just rambling on about Dahl and what i thought that's
1: why it's good not it's good not to google people you know you can go and say really can i say how much i enjoyed so and so I mean, we've seen all the recasts. It's such tremendous. But if you just go in and you're like, I'm not going to check here, these people. Yeah. I remember once doing some sort of stand-up at a lunch thing, some sort of fancy dinner, and um, this guy started heckling me. The crowd uh, was sort of laughing, and I, uh, by the t- so I said something before I've even turned around, and the crowd have laughed, or uh, and then I turned and I look at it. The guy's he's in a fancy fancy uniform. I was like, oh, what is this? And it turned out that he was the guest of honor at that event. Uh, and he'd made a speech at the beginning about how proud he was to be carrying the Olympic torch. Later <laughs> that year. But I mean, it, it, people should not overlook the, uh, the power of ignorance. No, ignorance is beautiful. That's that thing. It's it a great, Gatsby? Yeah, it's... the best thing, Daisy, Daisy says, the best thing you can be in life is a pretty little fool. Mm. And that is of course how I've tried to live my life, Tim.
2: Well, you've got half of it. <laughs> you are beautiful. <laughs> that is
1: a very nice switcheroo. Um, the technique, it's all on display. Um, <laughs> I, but, you know, looking back, though, what were the bits of it that were sort of frightening? I mean, when a show like that opens, you might think, you know, you have a great run-through. Is the dress rehearsal a disaster? Uh, you know, were the things that were changed the night before? Were that you know, you suddenly told, I know it's 11.15, but can you do take one more pass at this?
2: So uh, the hard thing was getting the tone right, and there's a whole journey that would take a whole podcast with Matthew and Dennis and me. Like, Dennis and I... Dennis and I were um quite tense you know in in the way that I've learned over the years since is really good and really enjoyable as long as everyone knows that the other people are in it to make good work and uh respectful but the the fight is fantastic and Dennis and I love each other very much now but early on it was quite like well hold on <laughs> you can't do that because that will ruin my script and this will ruin my song and it was like um, (laughs) and Matthew would arbitrate and but all along we'd make each other just fall about laughing as well but there's and then I had to rewrite songs and I realized we couldn't work out how to make Matilda sing because she's not demonstrative and the two protagonists Miss Honey and Matilda are both both defined by not being demonstrative in a very demonstrative Dalian world and we had to figure out how that worked and on and on but I did not do the hard work I was, I was off on tour. I, I opened my orchestra show with a symphony orchestra in an 8,000-seat venue in Birmingham. My first night I'd ever done that where I was writing material that day, including sending someone out to buy a copy of the Koran in Birmingham because I wanted to do a bit about burning books for the first time in front of 8,000 people because I'm mad, the night before Matilda opened in Stratford. So I was no. I I kind of went here's your songs and I took off and Chris Nightingale is being my musical supervisor orchestrator he did all the work and he'd be on the phone going well well we need um uh, uh, uh you know, four more bars here and I thought it could be this and I'd be like yeah no just do repeat that but use this and and it was that but I I just I did not do the tough stuff that eleventh hour stuff I was always there in on the phone but I I didn't. It's I, I, it's really important to me that I'm not credited for making Matilda. I just wrote the songs and ran away to do my comedy career. So you're
1: not. When did you get to see it then? If you're if you're busy, um, I went that, doing that what night. Sounds like some slightly contentious material. You went back
2: that night. Yeah, I went. I I, I opened in Birmingham, and my brother came because he'd flown over to England to watch Matilda. Came to Birmingham, and we caught the train the next day to Stratford and watched it. Stayed up and read the reviews had a meeting the next morning where everyone's like, right, we need to start talking about the West End now. And then I went back to London with Sarah and then my second gig was the night after that in some other, my second orchestra gig. There just happened to be two nights off, I think. I mean, that's a hell of a week, isn't it? Big week, yeah. And I often think, so, so this, I mean, God, it's all so indulgent, these conversations, but this thing where that, Thing that doesn't really worry me about being at the RSC. That just makes me think it's great, bit of a lark. There's something going on with my brain because I look back on that and I am quite proud of and slightly like baffled by that guy. What was I thinking? And I think Sarah would say, <laughs> you were really, really, really stressed. But I don't remember yeah. it like that. I just remember it as heightened.
1: Yeah, but that, there's those sort of coping mechanisms, isn't there? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you might you might be really nervous, and you don't feel the nerves mentally. You're just aware that you've got like a bad back or whatever yeah, it might that, be, that, or that you're lashing yeah, out on public I transport, really, whatever. But your head's <laughs> not sort of.
2: <laughs> well, that's the thing because I never lash out ever, ever, ever. So there's no lashing out either. There's I, I've never yelled at someone or anything. I just get like. Ah, uh, self-hating. I just go, why have I got myself yeah. in this situation? I'm. So, I just. I hate. <laughs> I hate performing anyway. I don't know why I do this. I got stupid. I just get cross with myself. The thing is, when something like
1: that takes off, I know you. So oh, it's not mine. I'm just part of it. But you know, clearly at the centre of it, you've got this triangle uh, or a square. If you want to include Roald Dahl's mm-hmm. contribution, um, and then the thing like that, you know, you are you are part of it. Whatever you say. And then, and then it takes off. What what is that moment like? Because suddenly, you know, you, in a way, you're kept at a distance. But that going out and playing with an orchestra in front of eight thousand people sounds to me like a kind of quite extreme coping mechanism. <laughs> um, you know, you've got this it's this really this thing, needy. and then suddenly it takes flight. Mm. I, that is very. Do you know what? I can't actually sleep, darling. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire an orchestra. I think probably I think I ought to go. And, do a big gig at the symphony hall with an orchestra because otherwise I just, oh, I'll just be Someone rested. said to me the um, other day on
2: an interview, uh, the only way you can do a comedy show in an arena and not make money is to do it with a symphony orchestra. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but we did it. I'm super proud. But then once it's something like that, it's taken flight, does it still feel
1: like yours? I mean, it could go, it's been on presumably in countries you've never been mm. to and things like that. Yeah. Uh, until- do, does it? and does it, does it sort of drift away from you?
2: Yeah, it, it does, and it's important that you let it.
1: Um, well, you know, we'd be knocking on people's doors in, <laughs> I don't know, dressing rooms in Singapore, so a couple of yeah. notes, uh, Tim, by the way, yeah. the writer. Yeah. Um,
2: I, I, don't, I don't feel any angst about the fact that it, it grows up and leaves home, but um, as you say, that kids singing when I grow up in schools and the idea that there's an amateur production, you know, now on pause for a pandemic in Wisconsin and... You know, a total different production in Norway. I mean, it, it's, it's pure. I sort of started talking about this early and got boring and distracted, but Matilda is just joy to me. It was joy to make and I remain completely in love with everyone who made it and every actor who I've ever met who did it and I just, there's no downside you know i just love it i love it and there is downside to a lot of what we do you know you know that it's you know you worry a lot about the messages you're putting into the world and you worry a lot about whether you're going to keep doing good work i mean i don't need another hit but i certainly need to keep working and i really worry that i'm all the time i go through periods where i'm like ah uh, I just got lucky for a few years there. I'm never going to make anything good again because clearly I'm not very good. I just got lucky. You know, I'm doing that all the time because that's what artists do. But Matilda just it just glows.
1: What's the most sort of uh, emotional you felt about it? I mean, when you're, when you're in something, I, I find sometimes with theatre there's mm. distance from it. If I'm in a play and I know the people in it, it doesn't stop me in any way being able to enjoy it you know when you've seen so many sort of iterations of it and the people that created it and people that have taken over presumably you you can't stop yourself being being moved even by your own work sometimes
2: oh no i mean you should be moved if you've done your job i mean it doesn't work every time but if you've done your job and they're doing their job and you're in the right state of mind it should work forever i mean i have songs i've written that i can get upset by them fifteen years later if the moment's right. Um, Matilda, I find, I, I totally agree. I can see friends. In fact, if anything, watching friends unpack themselves on a stage destroys me. Like, yeah, watching people I know doing incredible performances, I can become inconsolable. But Matilda's, I, I, I I'm not. I'm not very whisked away. I, I find it really hard. I, I, I love watching the performers, but I find it hard to sit in because it's my music, and I. Don't, oh God! I suppose I could have done that differently, or maybe given my time again, I'd rewrite that. But not even that. It's just the. Yeah, I want the voice should be a bit louder, and I mean, I, I've watched Lloyd Webber get up out of his seat and run to the mixing desk in one of his watching one of his musicals. He just can't sit, you know, and and it's very hard as a songwriter to relax in a musical.
1: But I think that's so much better than you and I you and Dallas Kelly sitting at the back, you know, high fiving each other saying, got away with it yeah, again. Totally. Look at these fools.
2: Do you know? But um it's it's testament to Matthew's heart that he's watched it. Thousands of times or hundreds of times, anyway, and he he has particular places where he gets emotional, and it's it's a bit of a raw shark test, Matilda. I always go, so what did what did you what got you? And people will say, when I grow up, or quiet, or you know, in Matthew's case, it's when Miss Honey, when Missus Phelps says, and it was the greatest school in the whole land. Um, That just makes Matthew, because that's what he cares about, is. Kids having a place to learn, you know, that's why he does what he does. And I don't know, God, it's uh, for me. It's quiet. Quiet is the thing I'm proudest of as a as a songwriter. And the moment I think all the you talk about lightning in the bottle, all those things, you know, Peter Darling's choreography and and Rob's design and and Hugh's lights and De- and Matthew's direction and Chris's orchestration, and it just it's. Beautiful, and a the, the, little kid standing alone on a stage with their arms out and their eyes closed in a beat of like a five, six, seven second beat of silence in between the verse and the chorus, that's like, that's why we do our job. It's beautiful. Um, before you pour your fifth
1: glass, can I ask a question <laughs> with... Um, <laughs>
2: I, I uh, just wanted to uh, clarify that, that I hadn't drunk. This is my third class, and it's perfectly gentlemanly. Oh, I've, I, I struggle to count when I'm this drunk. Um, <laughs> Especially in the morning. I'm not I a morning just, counter you... at the best of times. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: could you have created a show like Matilda as a straight
2: commercial prospect? No. Well, Look, it's it's possible. There are great commercial producers out there who take risks and, in fact, it's extraordinary. Uh, in a, in, and actually is what attracts me to the US, even though I find it problematic. They are risk takers and they will take some raw talent and uh, take a, a gamble on it. But from the moment they take a gamble on it, they'll then be driven by fear and try and control it to mitigate risk. Um, The Royal Shakespeare Company, I don't know how much it's just their just sort of culture or whether it's to do with their remit or whether it's to do with their subsidies, but what they choose to do or are are able to do is uh, take risks and to focus on integrity you know, I, at no point did the Royal Shakespeare Company or actually the Dahl Estate try to wrestle from Matthew or us creatives uh, our vision for what the things should be. Um, and that that's scary because it's really different, Matilda. It's, it's really different. It's structurally and tonally and Musically and design, it's it's different, and and um, I think I think the fact that they're subsidised is a huge part of that. Another part of it is uh, incredible dedication to craft. So uh, whether that be facilitating workshops or um, the fact that they built the entire set out of you know w- wood, not not polymers, and you know it was. The, the craft of that original uh, Stratford production of Matilda was unbelievable and uh, the costuming and the commitment to excellence, to, to excellence in theatre making as a worthy pursuit in and of itself, not because it might buy you a car or might, you know, win you a prize but because if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. And that, that I, I've carried what I learnt from the RSC and from Matthew and from Jeannie O'Hare who was a literary agent at the RSC who brought me on board. And from that experience, that experience of working inside the RSC with Matthew has completely altered my life, has changed, changed everything because it made me believe that there's more than just getting laughs and, getting famous that there's there's work that's worth pursuing you know what is then
1: um what is the next dream project that you would love to make if money time covid perhaps even casting were no issue um would it it be a sort of two-hander with me and julianne moore i
2: think so i think i would i would stage i I would stage manage a two-hander with you and Julianne Moore, <laughs> directed by you and Julianne Moore. Um, I I don't really think about dream projects. It, it, well, it, I, I kind of am in a position where I get to slightly um, choose what I'm going to do next. Or, um, I, I'm, I really enjoyed making Upright, my TV show, and mm-hmm. I want to make another one of those and that's, because of COVID and stuff, it's, it's hard. But I have another idea for a TV show, uh, a sort of period piece comedy ab- about uh, a kind of genius. Um, it, it's a bit mad. And I, I think that's what I want to do next. I, I, wanna, I think I want to make another TV show. That's a boring answer. I should have said something about the moon. <laughs> it has to be space travel. <laughs>
1: I think, yeah. I just I just want to get members of the public up there and moving around and yeah. seeing what it's like. Um, it's
2: a priority.
1: <laughs> I think, yeah, never more relevant. Um, releasing uh, a new album during a global pandemic. On balance, yeah. knowing what yeah. you know now. Good? High five, got away with it?
2: Yeah, got away with it. Made, made, uh, made a virtue out of the limitations, you know. Um, and if anything, the record... Belongs in a bit of a shitty year in a way that my previous work doesn 't because it 's quite a meditative, sometimes slightly depressed but also uplifting you know selection of songs so i think I think it 's been fine i 'm just so glad I had something that I could keep doing, so I could keep you know mixing the record and promoting it and making music videos. With whatever limitations were in place, which was quite an interesting challenge. So, yeah, it's been, it's not so much that a pandemic year is a good year to put out an album, but an album's not a bad thing to be doing in a pandemic year, right?
1: Every cloud. Um, Yeah. Okay. But also, of course, it's not, you know, an album lasts forever.
2: Yeah. I hope it will have relevance beyond the virus. That would be ideal. This is
1: the three minute bell final question. Uh, You're allowed to show your reasoning, your thinking, your working. But you're going to say nipples. You are... Sorry. Oh, I've read that wrong. You are allowed (laughs) to show your nipples. Um, Uh, Oh, God, no, I've read that wrong. You have to show your nipples, it says here. (laughs) Who, real or fictional, uh, would you most like to share an interval drink with?
2: I I mean, I'd quite honestly say um, Shakespeare... Probably, except I sort of feel embarrassed to say it and doubly so on an RSC podcast. But it, Shakespeare is such, I'd really like to know who the dude was, right? I'd love to know what he thinks about the play we, yeah. we're in the middle of.
1: <laughs> I suppose that sense as well, what you would know about someone, you, some people you could say, well, it's just all in their work, isn't it? It's there. You know, you get, oh, you only have to read uh, whatever. A, Speech from Hamlet to understand what the man was like, but that's not—that's not what writing is, is it? Necessary? They're not like—he wasn't. You know, you can't assume oh, he was a man with issues, and he had to just make up these characters or take these characters from history to put his feelings in. I mean, there's people, there's writer performers with nothing. There's nothing of themselves in what they do. So the fact is, his work may tell us nothing about him whatsoever. And you want to get—I to th- want to have a drink with him. To the meat uh, of it, it's—it's
2: it's not that I think.
1: I he might say what I always wanted to do was uh musicals
2: build build houses no what what's extraordinary is that he's a ge- he was a genius um he was a genius like uh, just extraordinary capacity to take in and uh understand comprehend human emotion and information and ideas and weave them into beautiful words but I think, I think people do misunderstand that a lot. I think they think that, especially with, <laughs> with my work and the work I'm making at the moment, people are struck by how honest it is. But I'm like, well, it's honest, but it's craft. It's, it's not honest like if I was writing a diary and just writing what I think. It's honest because it comes from an honest place. It has an honest tone, but it's not an autobiography. It's not a diary. It's a bunch of songs. And I suppose what I'd love is if I had a drink with Shakespeare, having got out of my time machine with no concerns that I was going to have any technical issues <laughs> when, I, when it came to coming home. And I was super relaxed. Um, it'd be great. To, I, I just, I hope he was, I want him to be funny. I reckon, I reckon he might be really funny. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. I think um, that uh, I think Mr. Minchin has given us an hour of exceptional Minchinisms. Uh, it's allowed us to see the world through his eyes. It's very nice to talk to you, Tim. I hope to see you again in the flesh. And uh, I hope uh, whatever you do next um, will Doesn't bring suck. more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> more than anything, that. I hope it brings you joy.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you, man.
0: We'll see you for more Interval Drinks next week when RSC actor Mahadi Masuku will be sharing a gin and tonic with actor and writer John Carney. Remember,
2: you can catch your favourite episodes again on the Royal Shakespeare Company website.
1: Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes.